By some roll of the dice, or a lofting of cumulative pre-war prayers, Charlottesville, Virginia had survived World War III, which had lasted less than an hour. So the story goes, no fireball had seared the city, no blast wave had crumbled buildings and buried the inhabitants, no dark mushroom cloud had spread over the sky. Much of the country had been devastated by massive nuclear attack, but the small, gracious city of Charlottesville, Virginia, had escaped unharmed. So the story goes. And that story is Appendix C in The Effects of Nuclear War, a 1979 report to the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations by the Office of Technology Assessment. It's not exactly the place you might expect to find a fictional narrative of small-town life after a nuclear war by a Washington Post journalist. But in 1979, Nan Randall was asked by the Office of Technology Assessment, the OTA, to compile all that was known and assumed about a late Cold War nuclear attack and put it into something as real and as effective as possible. After the 115-page report of relentlessly negative assessments and appallingly large casualty numbers, the OTA wanted something more human, and likely something shorter and more consumable by the septuagenarian senators. Charlottesville might have escaped the bombs, but it did not escape the aftermath. Shelter life, fallout, refugees, survival, replanting, starvation, and disease, all rendered in the factual detail of a journalistic narrative. Unburied bodies, squatters in houses, the federal remainder holding court somewhere in an unnamed Midwestern town. It's hard to think of a single thing that wouldn't be part of the same sort of portrayals of post-attack life that would come in the 1980s. But this was not the 1980s. This was 1979. And nothing quite like it would ever be produced by the U.S. government again. The mantle would be taken up by ABC's The Day After and other slightly lesser films and novels. But what Nan Randall did with Charlottesville in the 1979 OTA report, and what the report itself did in previous pages with Detroit and Leningrad, was to create the last incarnation of something that U.S. civil defense had been trying to effectively do from the earliest days of the Cold War. To build a place in the imagination, to frighten, to caution, and to offer just the right dose of hope. A place I like to call Doomtown, USA. And this is the Cold War Vault. Before Operation Alert began in 1954, when Americans started to play out their apocalyptic pantomimes in the streets of the country's largest cities, 
the Federal Civil Defense Administration decided that it needed some realistic interpretation of what citizens might expect in a war. An atomic bombing simulation. An imagined disaster with very real nuclear weapons. This had been going on since 1946, with the ghost fleet of Operation Crossroads at Bikini Atoll, but always with an eye toward the military. Military effects tests, the bombs themselves, and the effects on military equipment. Operation Crossroads showed a few things in that regard, stunningly clearly. Among them, that an anchored naval fleet could survive an atomic bomb burst overhead, even if the sailors could not. And that a bomb burst underwater would not, as Admiral Blandy said, start a chain reaction in the ocean, converting it all to gas. The oceans would survive, even if the fleet would not. This exploration of weapons effects continued with the Desert Rock series of troop maneuvers from 1951 through 1957. Those were the troop maneuvers that gave us a few iconic images of Marines marching into mushroom clouds from trenches uncomfortably close to Ground Zero. But the focus was always on the military. Well, Val Peterson, the ever-imaginative and productive chairman of the Federal Civil Defense Administration under Eisenhower, wanted something a little closer to home. A literal home a real visual reference point for the American public for what it would mean to survive a nuclear attack. This would, in all hopes, provide the right balance between existential dread and a ray of hope that would influence people to follow the Federal Civil Defense Administration's advice on how to prepare, and thus, how to survive. Usually outlined in pamphlet form, and less frequently in freely available 16mm films to be shown in schools, churches, and other community gatherings. This would be called Operation Doorstep in 1953. And, despite what the official film and pamphlet of this first major civil defense test says, nothing was learned that couldn't have been more easily learned by looking at the effects on Hiroshima and Nagasaki eight years earlier. But it wasn't really about learning much new. Operation Doorstep was designed to be a show, a kind of civil defense performance under live fire conditions. Doorstep was carried out during the upshot knothole testing series in March 1953 in Nevada. From the start, it was an operation designed to have the maximum reach in the media. More than 1,000 civil defense observers and reporters from every significant news source in the country flooded into the testing range, no doubt groggy from however they had spent the previous night in Las Vegas. They were shepherded around by civil defense officials to the houses and test objects to take photos and film, then back to Vegas. And then, the next morning, painfully earlier, back to the test site to perch themselves in the dark on News Knob, the little rocky hillock designated for the purpose, and a vast array of cameras captured and live telecast the 16-kiloton explosion of a nuclear device named Annie. A side note for those interested, and a personal recommendation from me. 
The kinescope recording of the live broadcast contains what is the only real sound of a nuclear explosion I have ever heard in all of my years of research. I highly recommend you have a listen, because it might not be what you expect. I'll try to put it in the show notes. For whatever else Operation Doorstep did, it brought some stage-managed realities of a nuclear strike to the American people. So, what did those people see? The official film begins with what is probably, to most knowledgeable viewers today, not exactly a ray of hope. A glimmer? No, glitter. A slight glitter dusting of hope. One of the storm mannequins that have since become a cultural icon of the Nevada test site lays partially disheveled and twisted in a small improvised shelter in a collapsed house. The narrator says, Less than a mile from ground zero, a human being in a shelter should have survived. That's a stretch, but I will allow it because he doesn't technically give a time frame for that survival. This was part of the first of three stated goals for Operation Doorstep. To expose simple American homes to the bomb and test their simple basement shelters. One house was turned to matchsticks and blown away. The second still stood, but the blast had knocked out all of the doors and windows, and the mannequins had been thrown around violently and cut by flying debris. But I am told they all survived. Another goal was interesting. A sub-project of Doorstep that tried to answer some questions left open by Operation Hot Rod in 1951. Hot Rod had been a hastily planned, small-scale civil defense test to scatter five 1936-1939 sedans from Buick, Oldsmobile, Chevrolet, Lafayette, and Plymouth down the blast line and just see what would happen. It very much left open the question of whether civil defense should promote the family car as a safe place to be. In a nuclear war, I mean. Not just the intrinsic dangers of Dad's secondhand smoke or the lack of seatbelts. To answer this, Operation Doorstep brought in 50 passenger cars and three U.S. post office trucks and placed them at various ranges. The film record of the test indicates that nearly every car driven into the area could be driven out again under its own power in spite of damage. Nearly. Some were slightly radioactive. Some were slightly melted. The cars had been donated by regional dealerships, and it isn't clear what happened to them. But there is a clue. Because the mannequins that had been battered and beaten and assailed by broken glass were returned in large part to the department stores that had donated them, where, in many cases, they were put on display in Las Vegas shop windows. More an atomic novelty than a form of encouragement to people about survivability. But the Federal Civil Defense Administration wasn't done. Far from it. There were more questions to be answered and more disasters to stage. That would be Operation Q in 1955.
At the end of Operation Doorstep, there hadn't been any attempt to simulate a rescue of the mannequin families. The FCDA film does, however, show scenes of soldiers moving into the blast zone as part of Operation Desert Rock. The narrator says that civil defense personnel could move in as easily and safely as the soldiers. Operation Q was going to do just that. Make a show of it, film it, publicize it, and make a case to the American people that all was not lost. That civil defense instructions could save you, and civil defense rescue efforts could get you out. And it followed that civil defense should, of course, be funded maximally by Congress. Though there were many other effects tests in later years that have made their way into film montages of nuclear destruction, think of the well-planted lodgepole pine forests swaying in the blast wave, or the railroad bridge trellis collapsing, or even the house from doorstep going to matchsticks. But nothing quite gave the popular culture so much to look at as Operation Q, the pinnacle of civil defense pageantry and the imagined disaster. It was planned to be a complete dress rehearsal for war. Proper preparations, initial attack, rescue efforts, and recovery. The military was in on the plot, too. The Desert Rock exercises would continue, but this time, Desert Rock 6 would offer the spectacle of a cross-country march by Task Force Razor, the Army's reinforced armored battalion, from California into Ground Zero at the Nevada test site, fighting an imagined Soviet invasion and breaking the line with a 29-kiloton nuclear weapon. But at the heart of the Federal Civil Defense Administration's plans was the construction of a small town. Very small, but a representative sample of a small town, which the New York Times optimistically called Survival City, while the Los Angeles Times and others referred to it in turn as Terror Town and Doomtown. This Main Street USA had eight houses of different designs, fully furnished, including appliances. Four of the houses were situated on a lovely street called Doomsday Drive. There were six industrial facilities of different kinds, including a 250-watt radio station with four radio masts, two 3,000-kilowatt power transformer substations, a natural gas and liquid petroleum station, and a weighing and delivery facility. A little farther out were house trailers, cars, and emergency vehicles. In general, the town held up well, Two houses and two industrial buildings were destroyed, vehicles were overturned, and the model electric grid set up to supply the structures had been disrupted when four of the 15 utility poles were broken in the blast. On the other hand, the radio station had survived, though it had ceased broadcasting. The natural gas infrastructure remained intact, and the telephone system still worked. On the surface, sure. This is all true. Initial reports from the aftermath described the surviving structures, but they neglected the little details that make living in the aftermath such a chore. 
all of the surviving structures had lost their windows, and the glass had turned into flying projectiles. And I don't just mean a rain of glass shards. True to their respective worldviews on the outcomes of the civil defense tests, the New York Times and the LA Times differed on the survivability of the test structures. The New York Times published the headline, Area Stands Up Well. The LA Times wrote, Adam City Shows Few Could Have Survived. Both of these headlines are true. The LA Times reported, It is doubtful that many occupants in the dwellings would have escaped critical injury or death. In virtually every structure, razor-sharp chunks of window glass, like translucent guillotine knives, had been hurled across the room with terrific force. Small lances of glass were driven deep into cans of food. Speaking of cans of food, most types of food, including canned goods, dry goods, meats, eggs, butter, and other dairy, and most conceivable foodstuffs, were exposed to the blast at different ranges and in different storage states, including in cabinets and on cupboards in the test houses, in boxes at ground level and buried three inches underground. And all of this, even the fresh vegetables from a buried crate suspectly close to ground zero, were used for the most ambitious civil defense field exercise yet, a mass feeding program. And it didn't even need to be simulated. There were hundreds of people to feed from the bombed food. Immediately after the detonation, the civil defense volunteers made breakfast for everyone in attendance. Then, for maximum realism, lunch the next day was made amongst the rumens of Doomsday Drive, bombed roast beef in five-gallon cans on open coals with scorched houses as a backdrop. You can see it all in the film of Operation Q. There were many interpretations taken back to communities across the country by the hundreds of observers and volunteers in the exercise, and much of what was learned, and even more of what was intended to be demonstrated for the cameras, became part of even more widespread imagined disasters. This time, Doomsday Drive in Survival City became every street in any town USA. Val Peterson, in his relentless effort to bring the tenets of civil defense into every American home, announced Operation Alert. In the last episode, the annual Operation Alert exercises were the occasion for the Eisenhower administration and the rest of the federal government to rehearse nuclear war and try to learn what they could, or at least be seen to be learning, about continuity of government. But at the same time, the rest of the country was living its own imagined disaster and trying to decide if there would actually be ways to survive. And if they did survive, would there be anything worth surviving for? Though Operation Alert didn't start until 1954, public civil defense exercises were organized by the Federal Civil Defense Administration starting in 1951. As a kind of trial run, 38 states and territories held mass air raid drills 
late that year. On November 28th, in New York City, traffic was stopped and the streets were emptied. Pedestrians sheltered for 10 minutes in the nearest basement or storefront. In 1952 alone, 2,000 civil defense exercises were conducted by cities and states, involving 2 million civil defense workers and 42 million citizens. Citywide drills were held in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. Statewide exercises with millions of participants were held in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands held island-wide exercises, while civil defense in Hawaii and Alaska played atomic war games with the military called Exercise Eversharp and Exercise Warm Wind. Remembering the purpose of Operation Doorstep and Operation Q is really useful in seeing how far some of the civil defense agencies, state and local, would go to create visuals for the imagined attack. Visuals, or I guess you could call them props. Newspapers in Buffalo, Syracuse, and New York City published emergency editions of their newspapers on the day of the drills with headlines like, A-bomb destroys downtown Buffalo, 40,000 killed, and 203,000 killed as A-bomb hits Bronx. You can see the show notes for some images of these in particular. They were so successful at making people briefly panic at what a real attack might look like, the next year, the FCDA encouraged all newspapers to publish emergency editions. Not just for the public reaction, but as a kind of mini-test. If the printing facilities of the newspaper looked like they would be destroyed, the Boston Globe, for example, or the New York Times, then create and execute a plan to have the edition printed at an alternative facility, then have a plan to re-enter the bombed zone and create an emergency distribution network. Actually, without radio or telephone, this seems genuinely useful. Every U.S. state and territory and every province of Canada created and participated in drills and exercises throughout 1953 that were getting to be ever more realistic, or at least offer ever more realism, which is a different thing. Of these, Operation Beware is probably the most important in creating the kind of nationwide cooperation that would be needed for the eight-year run of Operation Alert. Operation Beware linked efforts from California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Utah, Nevada, the territory of Alaska, and the Canadian provinces of British Columbia and Alberta. The Far Western Association of State Civil Defense Directors, which was a new creation of concerned officials, invented a war game scenario that deserved a movie adaptation. Ongoing conflicts in Korea, Indochina generally, Iran, Pakistan, and India were all leading to an inevitable and imminent war with somebody. Notably not the Soviet Union. Not by name, anyway. Leading up to June 20th, 1953, 
The day of the exercise, the scenario assumed that there had been overflights of Alaska, Japan, Greenland, and Iceland by the, I guess we'll have to call them the Red Team. Imaginary fishing trawlers were spotted and reported to be doing something other than fishing. Terrorists, designated CTs, which definitely stands for communist terrorists, started to ramp up activity, so police detained all of the suspects throughout the region and discovered a massive plot to bomb utilities and assassinate politicians. Finally, at 6 a.m. on the day of the exercise, civil defense officials got word from Alaska that 75 enemy bombers were flying towards Seattle. This was the scenario, and it remains unclear how much of this was on paper and how much was actually acted out in communities of all sizes throughout the region. Because every participating state, territory, and province, down to the local level, had to develop their own sub-scenarios to deal with the evolving crisis. Sealed envelopes with specific local incidents were placed in civil defense command posts to be opened on a timeline and provide simulated emergencies to which civil defense officials, firefighters and police, and in some instances the general public, would have to respond. It was a tabletop war game that would set the model for Operation Alert. The media called Operation Alert 1954 the most realistic air raid defense test of the atomic age. It began on June 14th at 11 a.m. and lasted for 24 hours. This time, it was 2,471 communities in all 48 U.S. states, the territories of Alaska and Hawaii, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, and 10 provinces of Canada. They all undertook tests of civil defense warning systems, evacuations, and shelter systems. In the war game scenario, 42 U.S. cities and 8 Canadian cities were attacked with nuclear weapons. 19 more cities were attacked with high explosives, incendiaries, sabotage, biological, chemical, and unspecified psychological warfare. On the ground, And in reality, 62 million people participated during the exercise. The minimum participation was a 10-minute shelter in place when the air raid sirens were sounded. Far more engaged were police, fire, and local officials in most of those 2,471 communities who were up all night dealing with their respective nuclear wars. When the first Operation Alert was over, 9 million were dead. 4.5 million injured, and 7 million left homeless. There was a certain degree of spectacle to these war games, absolutely. Tracy Davis has written a whole book about it, called Stages of Emergency, that argues that the entire civil defense project was just a kind of theater. And of course it was, government officials flitting off to secret bunkers in very public fashion, Times Square being emptied of thousands of people in minutes, and civil defense volunteers reporting on casualties that had only happened on paper. But that spectacle, that theater, was exactly what the Federal Civil Defense Administration wanted. But in its annual report, the administration pointed out the shortcomings of simulating a nuclear attack. The report said, quote, 
Because it was hypothetical, the public impact of Operation Alert was brief. There were no casualty lists. No survivors suffered hunger, thirst, cold, or bereavement. And that is a very difficult chasm to bridge between realistic simulations and reality. The more realistic, the more engaged the public might be, as long as the realism still offered some kind of hope. But the efforts of civil defense fell victim to two separate and opposing forces, which I will describe in a moment. Even in the face of general resistance and an ever-growing organized protest, civil defense soldiered bravely on. 1955 brought megaton range weapons down on 60 cities. The scenario imagined 16 million dead over two weeks and another 8 million over six weeks. It's worth noting that the report to Eisenhower by the National Security Council that year actually assumed something closer to 60 million dead. In the final analysis of the exercise that year, the FCDA report said, Operation Alert showed a nation unprepared to cope with a thermonuclear attack. And why? Because of the fallout problem. Well, it was really more of a roof and window problem. As the New York Times reported, until Operation Alert, federal officials treated the problem of fallout with a great lack of candor. It went on to say that the government had created the impressions that people might begin moving back to their homes four or five days after an attack. But Operation Alert 1955, still not quite putting the two pieces together, reported that 11.3 million houses would have been affected by the bombing, and 3.9 million more left uninhabitable because of fallout. But you have to remember the FCDA's own Operation Q. Plenty of dwellings were left standing, and not a single one with windows. With damaged roofs and no windows, fallout finds its way into every house. It didn't take long for journalists and the general public very soon after to realize that the civil defense scenario for digging out and rebuilding within the week was wildly optimistic. Some in the protest movement found it criminally misleading. And there was no secret about the ever-growing size of nuclear weapons on both sides of the Cold War. The threat was in the public's mind constantly. Realistically, technically, and scientifically, it was in the news. And sensationally and apocalyptically, it was in popular culture. From the general unease of the dawn of the atomic age in 1945, through the nervous uncertainty of the first Soviet bomb of 1949, there remained, largely because of the legacy of Harry Truman's civil defense policies, a perception of survivability. The idea that the bomb was different, yes, but like the Europeans and the Japanese, we would physically rearrange the rubble and build again. But by the end of the 1950s, the much more widely held sense was one of existential doom. 
that if it happened, a lean-to shelter in your basement would do you just about as much good as it had done the mannequins in Operation Doorstep and Operation Q. And less, because there wouldn't be anyone to come to your rescue anyway, much less serve you delicious roast beef for lunch. And so I said earlier that civil defense eventually fell victim to two different but opposing forces. When the public turned against it and threw up its collective hands and refused to play the war games. When Doomtown, USA, wasn't a demonstration, it was a description of everyone's everyday new normal. Realism engaged the public in defensive planning. But through the 1950s, more realism in civil defense exercises meant admitting that less and less could be done for fewer and fewer people. On the other side, if civil defense insisted that something could still be done, it just drew down more and more public skepticism and resistance. The issue only got worse as the years went on. The tension between those two public perceptions. Operation Alert 1960 actually illustrated just how difficult the position of civil defense had become. The exercise began with an address on the Connellrad Emergency Network from Eisenhower, who, you will remember from the last episode, was hiding in Mount Weather. He said, Survival cannot be guaranteed merely with the capacity for reprisal. If, despite our efforts toward keeping peace, we should be faced with nuclear attack, a strong civil defense, supported by all Americans, offers the best program for the saving of lives. Those strongly opposed to the Operation Alert and civil defense program in general, for a variety of reasons, offered their considered opinion that a better program for the saving of lives would be not having a nuclear war. Eisenhower's address did not go over well in many quarters. To augment realism, Operation Alert 1960 opted to simulate failing and fragmentary communications delivering federal reports to local organizations in pieces to force the local civil defense officials to figure out the sizes and locations of nuclear detonations on their own before deciding on evacuation and recovery routes. So then, those higher-ups just assumed there would be no national plan? None of this went smoothly. In newspapers from the New York Times to the Los Angeles Times, and many in between, the calamitous virtual war played out across headlines the next day. Not according to fantasy, but according to the numbers provided by civil defense officials themselves, calculated on their own. New York City found itself with millions dead. The New York Area Civil Defense Organization had been forced out of town by impending fallout. Their official determination was literally that they had to close up shop and run away, which they did. Throughout New York State, civil defense workers estimated 9 million virtual dead and injured. On the West Coast, the exercise scenario saw Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, northwest of Santa Barbara, and March Air Force Base near Riverside, attacked with thermonuclear weapons. Due to prevailing winds, the fallout from Riverside started to drift toward Los Angeles. 
The 10-megaton bomb at Vandenberg resulted in fallout that would kill 11% of the San Fernando Valley and sicken 70% if they remained in place, which they would have to do, because Los Angeles now had to be evacuated. A mass evacuation of 150,000 people. When this was undertaken in the simulation in the civil defense bunker, it resulted in what the senior police representative in the exercise called the greatest traffic jam ever created on the face of the earth. The growing protests and the increasing national indifference were two sides of the same coin. The increasingly honest assessments of the value of the civil defense program as it was currently formulated with the national simulations and days of imagined disaster left too many people in the public and in Congress a little too cold. It reached all the way to the new president, John Kennedy, who brought an end to Operation Alert. The U.S. government never really tried again in the way it had in the 1950s to create visual depictions of simulated wars or to run national rehearsals and drills in the interest of civil defense. There were no more mannequins, no more model homes, and no more mass evacuations. What had been spectacular pageants of simulated war withered to the occasional pamphlet in the face of cynicism and disinterest. But there was one last doomtown USA posited by a U.S. government agency in the Cold War, the Office of Technology Assessment Report from 1979. When the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations asked for the report, its specific request was to look at the effects that a nuclear war would have on the United States and the Soviet Union, given the cumulative research of the Cold War, and to, in the words of the request, put what have been abstract measures of strategic power into more comprehensible terms. While I will leave it to you, the Vault listeners, to explore its pages, I can offer two of its principal findings. First, conditions would continue to get worse for some time after a nuclear war ended, and second, the effects of a nuclear war that can't be calculated in advance are at least as important as those that can. From the outset, there are hypothetical cases of the kind that fill archives of Cold War nuclear history. Force strength, counterforce attacks, millions killed, rinse, and repeat, with well-ordered tables to compare them all. After a fairly rudimentary primer on what exactly nuclear weapons do, the report offers something interesting. A specific and detailed comparative case study between two comparably sized industrial cities, Detroit and Leningrad. While the senators probably didn't give a flying flamingo what happened to Leningrad, the specifics in the description of Detroit were something new. Not just a general number of how many might be killed in their sleep, but a specific number based on knowing exactly how many people would be under the bomb in the middle of the night, taken from U.S. Census data. In 
and not just loss of utilities, but descriptions of substations and pumping facilities that were very real in Detroit. Which would survive, and which would not, and why? Not rough assumptions of infrastructure to rescue and bring supplies, but the Detroit Metropolitan Wayne County Airport and Interstate 75, and the loss of the Detroit-Windsor Highway Tunnel. The specifics go on, likely to great effect for those who had never seen such a detailed analysis of the destruction of a specific U.S. city before. And then, of course, for those who still didn't get the emotional intent of the report, Appendix C offers the highly detailed fictional account of Charlottesville by Nan Randall that I spoke of at the beginning. Charlottesville, neither industrial nor populous, perhaps a little more educated than some of the country, a little closer to the seat of government, but an any town nonetheless. Like countless on the maps in the OTA report that found themselves, by some accident of history, inside one of those concentric rings of nuclear destruction radiating out from Detroit. Whether the destruction of model towns or the evacuation drills of real towns or the annihilation of the whole country in a tabletop exercise would have made any real difference, we do not know. It may have represented a real chance to survive, nor it may have offered false hope to a frightened population. Sociologist Lee Clark wrote that the civil defense plans to recover from a nuclear war were fantasies, designed to claim mastery over problems for which there were no solutions. I'm not sure if Lee Clark has ever read some of the correspondence of state and local civil defense directors, but they certainly didn't believe they were institutionalizing fantasy. They believed that what they were doing had real value. What is clear is that by the end of the Cold War civil defense story, the last organization that tried to translate quantifiable data into something the public might understand about its effect on an average American town was the Office of Technology Assessment. The last of the American doom towns can be found in that book. The rest scattered through popular film and literature to one extent or another. Further experiments in coming to grips with imagined disasters. But what seems clear in the final assessment of the 1979 OTA report is that nuclear war had surpassed all attempts to mount anything resembling an effective civil defense. Because in the nuclear war it described, surviving the attack was the easy part, and the worst was yet to come. The final best defense, like the report's fictional future Charlottesville, was just to roll the dice and pray. Because there are bigger factors at play in your fate and whether you find yourself in Survival City or Doomtown than your distance to Ground Zero. Thank you for listening to The Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kenny. Find The Vault at coldwarvault.com for show notes and images, 
on Facebook for the occasional Cold War-related article and updates, and on Patreon to support the show. There's merchandise available in the gift shop, and I'm building a library there as an Amazon partner, where you can buy any book I reference or mention. It's another way to help the vault grow. Remember, there's no place like home, unless you live on Doomsday Drive. Until next time.